dial star 611 for assistance as your cellular phone is not authorized for use at this time. Pour de l'assistance, veuillez composer étoile 611. Vous n'avez pas le... Hello, podcast listener. Everything around you that you call life was made by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can build your own things that other people can use. The App Guy Podcasts, straight from your host, Paul the App Guy, sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. And now, Paul the App Guy. Welcome to another episode of the App Guy Podcast. I'm Paul Kemp. I'm your host, and I've got lined up a terrific guest, uh, Jesse Filer. He is the owner of North Country Consulting, and he's got a wealth of experience to share with us today. He's uh, going to talk to us about app business models and how we can actually run our businesses uh, using uh, his proven principles. Now, Jesse really is an authority in the app world. I mean, he's written a number of books. Uh, He's the author of iOS 6 Foundations and a number of other books. Uh, He's uh, the author of Sam's Teach Yourself Core Data in 24 Hours and Teach Yourself Objective-C in 24 Hours. And there's a number of uh, books, and and it's a very long list. And I was going to ask you, Jesse, why, why such a long list of books? (laughs) Well, it actually, it wasn't planned. It just sort of happened because I have worked with Apple Technologies for quite a while. And in the late 90s, Apple bought OpenStep, which had been NextStep from the company called Next, which was founded by Steve Jobs when he left Apple. And in the 90s, all of the companies basically Microsoft and Apple, were looking to replace their operating systems that had been built for the original personal computers. They wanted to replace them with more modern ones. And both Microsoft and Apple tried to build new ones. And finally, in the late 90s, Apple decided that they were going to buy it. And they looked around to see what they could buy. And OpenStep had a very, very good reputation. It handled a lot of very interesting things, and it was quite modern. So they bought OpenStep and brought it back into Apple and converted it to what is now OS X and iOS. And I was very interested, and I was writing about Apple technologies at that point, so I wrote about this operating system, when it was called Rhapsody. So I wrote Rhapsody Developer's Guide in the late 90s. That was the first book about what we now deal with as iOS and OS X. So that's how I got onto it. I was one of the people who was able to put two or three words together on a page and knew the operating system. So that's why the books are there. Right. And were you just lucky that you fell into the Apple world? Or was there something about the technology that you just felt that was... Uh, way ahead of its time. I felt then and do now that it was a a more elegant and rational structure. And, but I must also say that I did start when I was a kid, I started working on mainframe computers. And at that point, IBM owned mainframe computers. And I never worked on IBM computers. I worked primarily on Burroughs mainframes, which 
were very interesting to work on. And even today, you can find some of the survivors from the Burroughs mainframes wandering around saying what I just said, which is that the architecture was very elegant, was quite robust, and really modern and forward-thinking compared to other manufacturers. So I've always been interested in the underdog who's elegant and uh, robust. And I've got an interesting question because I think people listening to this have a choice ahead of them if they're just getting into uh, development for mobiles, app development. There is a choice between Google Android versus the Apple ecosphere. Why should people pick Apple? Obviously, there's the usual thing about you know how much money can you make with one versus the other. But in terms of just the technology, what makes Apple so attractive versus perhaps your experience with Google Android? What I find attractive about it, well, the thing that's most attractive is that I know it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, really, as a developer, you start from yourself. You know, most people who are seriously interested in becoming developers of apps are not starting from square one. So you look at what your strengths are and how you can best use them, what your strengths are and what you like doing. So if, you, if, you, if you're really into gaming, then don't start building a productivity app. You know, you really have to look at yourself. But I think also what I like, what I see about Apple that I like very much in addition to the elegance and the robustness of the frameworks and the language and the fact that it appears that Apple developers may make more money, which is a significant issue to consider. But I also think that over the last, what, what are we, six or seven years, since the launch of the App Store, if you ask people what Apple's greatest achievement is over this period of time. I think some people might say the iPhone, which revolutionized the smartphone business. They might say the iPad, but I would disagree. The most remarkable achievement that Apple has achieved over the last few years, in my opinion, is the App Store. The fact that I can sit here I happen to be in Plattsburgh, New York, which is far northern New York. It is actually walking distance to Canada. And I can sit here and sell apps, write them here and sell them in Argentina, in Malaysia. I'm trying to think of some of the countries, Greece, <laughs> uh, Britain, yeah. but that doesn't count because I have a lot of relatives in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> No, but that's that's the great achievement. And they've given us this infrastructure that works and a great deal of support saying to developers, there used to be a document there, but they've sort of toned it down. But I loved the document. It basically said to developers, we know you want to write code and you can't wait to write code, but please sit down, write your app's description. The language that you're using to describe the app is critically important, maybe even more so than the code. And there was a lot of hand-holding, particularly right at the beginning, where they said, please don't ignore the fact that you have to write, do good screenshots and write good text, and then that'll make it possible for you to write the code. 
So it's the app store to me that's the greatest achievement. We often overlook that, the fact that you can sell to all these countries. And in fact, Apple make it quite easy to go in and pick the countries that you want to uh, sell to and, and those that you want to avoid if there's any conflict with your app. But what was it like in those early days? You were probably in the beta. You were you invited as a beta tester uh, for the early development of the iPhone. What, what was it like back then? Uh, I did not work on the iPhone. And the reason was that I, looked, I knew the operating system. I recognized the classes and the method names. And I said, oh, oh this is very interesting. But I was rather busy at the time. And remember, we didn't have the App Store at that point. And in fact, we didn't have, for the first year and a half, we didn't have the API. We were using Dashcode to build web-enhanced apps, not native apps. So with all of that, I was very busy. And one of the things that I was busy with was looking at what was happening there. I wrote a book called Dashcode for Dummies because that's how we programmed on the original iPhone. So that's what I did. And then I said to people, a couple of times I was asked if I wanted to write a book about it. And I said, I know nothing about telephony. Now that turns out in retrospect (laughs) to have been (laughs) a rather naive uh, answer. But in fact, at the time, it wasn't. Uh, But as soon as the iPad started even being rumored, I saw that this is not about telephony. Well, it's definitely not about telephony with the iPad. And I said, aha, there are several ideas that I've had for traditional desktop applications that I haven't been able to figure out how to implement. And these tended to be productivity ideas and data-based ideas. And the iPad is exactly what I wanted. So that's when I got involved. I mean, we have come so far with smartphones. You know, I do remember the initial switchover, and you know, we thought that smartphones would be used primarily for phoning and browsing. And actually, uh, if we look at the use of smartphones now, it's far from just browsing on the internet and, and, uh, and making phone calls. But there is a there is a debate. I mean, maybe this has changed over the years, but native versus actually going mobile um, web, uh, mobile website. What are your views on native apps versus mobile apps? Um, My view is, and it's basically what I've seen, is that web apps are the fastest way to get something up. And for an organization that needs a mobile app quickly, uh, for competitive reasons, let's say, um, the web web enhanced is the way to go, but then they turn around. You you look at the financial industry and you see the banking apps and you see what they've done, and then they turn around and they do it in native versions. Yes, because that's really what I guess customers are expecting nowadays. Um, I mean, you avoid the uh, the problems of trying to get through the Apple uh, review process and the, the challenges of that and writing native apps. But uh, I guess that. People are used to downloading apps now. Uh, Well, they're used to downloading apps. And also, the things that we want in apps are are getting more and more difficult to do with web-based apps. There's a role for the web-based apps. But um, I think native apps are the way to go. And let's talk about paid versus the freemium model. I know you've got some views on that. Uh, Perhaps you can share your views on 
the app business model and, and you know paid versus free? Well, it's actually very, very interesting, and it's changed quite rapidly. And I'm looking at, it just came out, Destimo, which collects a lot of statistics on apps from around the world. And they are showing that in certain categories, and it does vary by category, I'm just looking at this, 90% of the revenue comes for games comes from freemium apps. The app is free and you're buying advanced levels or moves or so forth within it. And so at the top of the revenue, at the top of the uh, revenue amount from freemium apps are the categories of games, social networking, newsstand, music, entertainment, and news. And these are all in the high 80s or 90s. And that's because people are used to that sort of subscription model, you know, paying for songs, paying for news. And at the bottom are apps like Productivity and Navigation, where if you're paying for any part of that app, it sort of seems like software as a service. And uh, people are not certain they want to pay for that yet. But the amounts are quite staggering. I mean, 90% of game revenue from freemium apps. This is in the Apple App Store. There are also differences. I, I, I tell you, it'd be interesting to know which games as well. I'm sure there's a high concentration of the big games in that statistic. I th- yeah, I think there's a high concentration of the big games in every game statistic. And and I think that's the challenge that indie developers have is like breaking into the, you know, the big apps uh, that, that seem to dominate the App Store. Yeah, and I, I actually I think with. For an indie developer, for a developer who's working within a group, within a startup, within, you know, some kind of structure, things are different. But for an indie developer, I go back to what I said right at the beginning, which is you start with yourself. Because an indie developer who is interested in app development and the technology and so forth, and who happens to have some knowledge or interest that is really specialized has a leg up because that's the app that you write. And then you can break in. Yes, I believe that that is the way to go. And I mean, that's just, you know, being a developer myself and being faced with uh, every week seeing these beautiful apps coming on the, uh, the App Store, the Editor's Choice apps seem to have a lot of money thrown at them. You know, the thought of uh, having a smaller budget and trying to break into the... Um, the top 100 is is now really challenging but uh, of course i I guess that's different for a niche you know if you have an app that really niches down uh, or niche do you say niche or niche i don't know both (laughs) 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 but but it all goes together because if you have something that's very specific with either a field where you have a great deal of knowledge or a great deal of experience then if you combine that comes back to this to the app store you have a way of reaching the relatively small number of people in the world who would be interested in that app even just through the app store without going into promotion and advertising so i think it all fits together i think the app store can be a tremendous benefit to indie developers it's something that we we just didn't have before 
Yeah, maybe Apple need to kind of work a little bit on their discoverability of new apps. You know, it's a little bit like trying trying to get your app discovered. I mean, I know I've from experience launched apps, and on launch day you get a good number of downloads, and then there's a, it tails off pretty quickly because it kind of gets lost in the the hay. And you know, it's whether the, the Apple are doing a particularly good job, uh, like Google are with search and with easily finding the apps that you're perhaps most interested in. Ab- absolutely, but it also it also is true that, and here I come back to content. I'm a real content person. <laughs> it comes back to content because if you can use advertising, social media, or whatever to reach out to the potential users of the app based on the content, the subject area, and what it is, uh, then you have that is a nice companion to the App Store. So what I ask my guests, uh, on the, on, I've asked them now on several episodes, is what is really exciting you right now? What is really getting you fired up uh, in your world in terms of perhaps something related to app development? Location. Location, location, location. <laughs> I've heard also content, content, content as well. I think that's quite a good one. Yeah, but I've been saying content for years. Right. <laughs> location is new. And when I say location, I don't mean GPS alone. I mean beacons as well. The low energy beacons that Apple have been hiding in their, uh, secretly hiding in their iPhones for years. And now we realize that these are actually uh, they're able to emit low energy signals and become beacons. Yes. What a clever move by Apple. I'm sure you've seen it. The number of iBeacon equipped devices that are out there in the wild is staggering. It'd be worth explaining what actually that is because I think the people listening to this maybe not 100% sure of you know, uh, the, the way that works and, and, and what it's capable of achieving. Well, what it is, it's based on this low-energy Bluetooth which is designed for the distance ranges of Bluetooth, which is really close by, and very, very low energy, and takes very little energy off the battery. Is it permanently on? You can turn it on and off, like everything you can with the communications. But but it would run in the background, even in standby, when it's the phone's in standby in your pocket? It can, yes. Right. And beacons can be phones themselves, but they also are starting to sell uh, small beacons, and various companies have them for various prices. I've seen anywhere from like 10 to 20 or $30. And you put them, they're very tiny things, and run by a small battery, and you don't replace the battery. The battery lasts one to two years. And you can put it somewhere where the phone can pick it up. And one of the high-class examples that is always given about this is that you could stick it on the wall behind a painting in a museum, and as you walk past the painting, your phone will tell you what you're looking at. So in a way, um, as this catches on, Apple may have put the museum audio guides out of business very quickly. It's a wonderful way of doing it. Now, the other use, other than paintings in museums, is 
retail, and apparently the retail industry is very interested in this, so that you can walk by a display and pause in front of it, and your, your phone can tell where you are and how long you are staying there, and then you can pick up and walk somewhere else and stop and look at something else, and the phone can check in with a beacon and see where you are, and say, ah, the sweaters you are looking at now would go very well with the slacks you were looking at previously. Wow. Now, that's very interesting, but it does need to have a little bit of fine-tuning on it, because if you stopped for 15 minutes in front of the display of sweaters, because you were looking at the sweaters, that's all well and good. If you were standing there for 15 minutes because you ran into a friend, you might not have even noticed the sweaters were there. So we have a little bit of evolution <laughs> yeah. here. But and, these and, are, and let's these figure are, out how this works then, because uh, <laughs> is this a, a permission-based feature within apps? Yes. Right. And yes. so you would have to uh, approve the ability for beacons to then pick you up. And then the apps themselves would recognize the beacon that they're in front of and then realize that this is a beacon that belongs to the um, registered within the app and it knows exactly where you are in the store. You have to be by the jumpers or sweaters. And there are and there are protocols for different types of beacons uh, done in the Bluetooth group. So you have a lot of ones for speed, and so lots of interesting things are there. So the framework is all there, and I think it's going to take off. And it, what I haven't seen anyone playing with yet is because the iPhone or iPad can act as a beacon, not just locate a beacon, but be a beacon, if you are in a large room, let's say a convention center, and you need to meet up with someone, you could use an app for that. You know, in a, you know if there are 20,000 people on the floor, you can say, where are you? And you could use this as a... As wow. A, and, and this I, is the thing that Apple have, have been very clever with because all the tech journalists missed this. And it, I believe that it goes back as far as either the iPhone 4 or certainly the 4S. Yeah, one of those two. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know if people missed it. Or, well, they missed it. They didn't realize. Well, Apple did what they always do. Apple <laughs> did their own thing. And, and everyone was giving them a hard time because they weren't putting NFC chips in their yes. uh, devices. But, what Apple did was they took an existing technology that no one cared anything about and just, you know, said, okay, here's, you don't understand it, but here's our understanding of it. And suddenly <laughs> people are talking about it. <laughs> and can it, do you think it will be used for payments, like the NFC chips being potentially trialed for? I have read many articles that say it's just a matter of time, just as the Touch ID on the new iPhone uh, everyone says it's just a matter of time before apps can use it and it's used for payments. So we spoke about an indie developer trying to really uh, get their, themselves ahead. Perhaps if they're listening to this, they maybe need to think about using the new technologies that we have available to us as developers in their apps to, to make them distinctive and, and interesting. Oh, yes. And because some of these new technologies, many of the new technologies allow you to do things that are totally different from, from what we've done before. Um, and that's, there is a window of opportunity at, at the beginning because these, the beacon technology is 
so new in people's consciousness that we haven't really figured out what to do with it. I mean, I, I have read so many descriptions of the paintings in a museum and the sweaters in a shop. You know, yes, we know we can do that. <laughs> but what else can you do? I've talked to some people and we are looking at, there's some very interesting things you can do when uh, GPS is not appropriate. And like when you are doing, I did a trail guide that uses location services on the iPhone. And it shows people along the trail, historic sites and various things. But with beacons, we would have the ability to guide someone off the trail into, let's say, a historic site and continue guiding, which might be a, a building from you know a few hundred years ago, and we could continue guiding them through that building with beacons. So the transition from GPS to small scale with beacons is an interesting one. Yeah, because GPS just is not that accurate, especially inside buildings. Right. So it, so I think I think this is a wide open thing, and what's really wide open about it, and where an indie developer can uh, really maybe get very lucky, is to say, okay, here's an idea. It is not paintings in a museum, and it is not sweaters in a shop. This is something no one has ever thought of before. And before long, if you play your cards right and you make the right call, everyone will say, well, no one ever thought of it before, but how did we live without it? So, so I can see why this is exciting you because I'm already getting very excited talking to you about it. Um, can it, do you think it can be used for uh, when somebody walks into their home to actually activate certain devices? Oh, that's, that's already being used. Right. One of the things that I find very interesting, and, and I didn't write it because I assumed that someone else would write it, and I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I'm pretty busy at this point, so I will tell you my idea for an interesting app about walking into your home. Have you seen the Hue bulbs from Philips? Yes, I've read about them, and, but I haven't seen them. They are bulbs that have, I think, three LEDs within them, and they can, you can control them with an iPhone or over the internet. You can address the bulbs in your house or your office. You just, you just say, please make it romantic, or, and, and it will be a nice shade of red, and, or please make it ice cold, and, and it will be a blue shade. Is, is that well, right? From the, from the iPhone, you can set the color, you can turn them on or off, and you can set the brightness. Right. Now, I think that's very interesting because what it does, it turns the iPhone into a light switch. Isn't that exciting? The iPhone can be a light switch. I'm being sarcastic here. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I mean, the fact that you turn an iPhone into a light switch, I think is very exciting to interior decorators and architects. Because yeah, they you, you could just put it on the side of the wall and uh, have a, yeah, it's... You don't but, have but to sit on the wall. It's in your pocket, yeah. So it, the, it could be in your pocket, but what it means is for the designer or the architect, if you have this beautiful living room, whatever it is, and you have a beautiful wall and a beautiful window in it, it means you don't have to put a light switch in the middle of that wretched wall. The wall is an open canvas. If you're controlling the lights with 
a device, a mobile device, you can put the a fallback switch, you know, behind a closet or something, because you don't have to put these ugly light switches in the middle of the wall. Now, most people wouldn't care about this, but I can assure you architects and designers care about having to put light switches and outlets in the middle of walls. But making a mobile device into a light switch, I think, is really, you know, not terribly exciting. Mm. What is exciting, and this is what I can't imagine why no one has, has done it, and maybe one of your listeners will do it, is integrating this with other things. So in my contacts list, I can add fields and comments to that, and I can say this this person has uh, poor eyesight, let's say, so that when I put an appointment in my date book, for dinner and note that that person is invited and dinner is, let's say, at 8 o'clock, I don't want to turn the lights on or off. I want an app that will say, okay, a person with some limited vision is coming to dinner at 8 o'clock. I want the dining room lights automatically to go on at 7.30 bright. That's what's interesting. Turning an iPhone into a light switch is a big yawn. But having your calendar and your contacts control the lighting, I think, is very interesting. I'm already thinking of other applications, perhaps, for such a device. I mean, it, it is limitless. And Yeah, yeah because what, what you're doing is you're saying to people, okay, I don't think people, I don't think people really want to turn lights on and off. They want to be able to read or they want to be able to do something. They want to be able to do close work so that if we can take this drudgery of flipping light switches off and let the smart devices understand what we're doing and that implies increasing or decreasing the light level, having a more bright white light or, or more mellow light, I think there are great opportunities there. Well, I mean, let's just take that and, and maybe fast forward five years from now. Um, you know, what I want is I'm coming back from the shops. I'm carrying all my bags. I want the uh, the door to recognize that it's me coming up. I want it to open up automatically. I want a voice that says, hello, good evening, Paul. Um, I hope you had a nice day. I want to walk in. I want every light switch in the house to follow me around the, the, the house. I want the heating to come on automatically. I mean, you know, we can see that this is actually going to kind of revolutionize the, the, the household. Well, I think every piece of the technology you've just described exists. What doesn't exist yet is an understanding of how it can be put together. And there really is a scarcity of apps that put things together like this. We, we, we have time. There are apps you can control light switches with timers on apps. Yeah, we're very good at doing those things, but we've had timers for lights for decades. Mm. To me, that's boring. It's yeah. as boring as light switches. But when you move one level up so that you can say the app understands certain circumstances, and then you just set up the rules and say, okay, brightness, color, you know, 
all of these things and let it be triggered by something such as an appointment in your date book. That, that to me is what we, what we need. And I, my guess is that the opportunity is not for monster apps that will let you do every kind of control of every kind of device from the lights to the door locks uh, for dinner parties and for this, that, and the other thing. I think it's a great app opportunity because, again, someone comes along and we've got this technology and says, okay, here is an app that will manage, well, use my example, lighting for dinner parties. And maybe, maybe the opportunity there is for an app that looks at who's coming to the dinner party. Uh, are these people you want to see or people who you don't mind having in the shadows? <laughs> <laughs> it, may be, it may be what you're serving. It may be any, any of these things. So an app that controls the lighting in a room based on it, it, the menu, the guests, whatever – that's a very specific app, and I think we might. I think there are opportunities for apps this specific because also when you make them this specific, it, they're easier to write. If you say I want an app that will control every device in your house, um, then you're going to you're talking about a long development process, and a lot uh, of other people are doing. Uh, and this is really interesting because this comes on the back of um, my discussion recently for uh, an earlier episode with. Uh, an author called Drew Boyd, and he was saying, uh, he's written a book called Inside the Box, and he says we need to constrain our thinking to be more innovative, because when we constrain our, our thinking and really focus on one particular need for an app, then that's when we become become really creative. And I can see it working for this, where we really just drill down onto the specific need uh, perhaps for that low be- beacon, en- the low energy Bluetooth beacon, and, and, and really kind of focus on the, the, the few things that could be really killer. I, I, I can see that working now. Yes, I, I totally agree with that because one of the challenges is I was just talking to a friend over lunch yesterday and talking about something that I've been working on, and she said to me, "Oh, yes, that's a great idea, and you could add this, and you could add that, and you can add the other thing." And I thought, "No, no, no, we've been through this. This is feature creep, which we had on desktops. You know, where the idea is, yes, you can do that. You can you can do paragraphs, but why don't we add in footnotes? Why don't we add in this, that, and the other thing? And you wind up with these bloated pieces of software that are hard to develop." hard to use, hard to train people in. And the beauty of apps is that they are best when they are really focused. I was hearing a story just recently as well by Tom Tawley, who I interviewed, and and he said the initial idea for Instagram was actually it was some kind of um, app for bars. And it was like some kind of social app for people going out and drinking in pubs and bars. And it failed miserably, but um, they noticed that people were sharing photos on the app and then they decided to uh, focus heavily and, and rewrite the complete app and call it Instagram and obviously that was a quite a successful idea. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very common. We, we see this apps start up, all software starts up and with an idea of what it's going to be used for and uh, then people come along and use it for something totally different. Um, FTP was one of the first internet protocols for transferring files. And that's when the internet was 
I wasn't using it. <laughs> I wasn't around then. <laughs> but there are stories about this. Um, there were mostly researchers from the Defense Department and from universities. And they had this software that could transfer files. And they did use it to transfer files back and forth and share their research with one another. But these were smart people and they were innovative people. And they figured out that in addition to just transferring a file of data, uh, they could transfer very small files. Um, and that became email. <laughs> you know, because yeah. they didn't build it to, to do email because they didn't know what email was. They built it to, to do file transfer. And, and I, I also read that in the early days, there was actually a directory of email addresses, which was, um, you know, only a, a thumb thick. Uh, oh. if it, can you imagine a directory of email addresses now? <laughs> 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 it would probably be the size of my building I'm here in, which is 54 floors. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, this has been so interesting, and I'm sure that I'm getting ideas from just speaking with you Jesse, so I know that the audience as well is going to really appreciate you just being so open. Is there anything else that you feel that you want to share? Do you feel that we've covered uh, a good ground, or is there something that glaring that I've I've missed? I think I think we've covered a lot of things. Very good questions, but Jesse, it just takes uh, me to say thank you very much uh, for joining the podcast. I know that it's been a, a real pleasure from my side, and um, you've been a terrific uh, guest. So I appreciate you joining and just want to say thank you and hopefully we'll get another chance to speak in the near future. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Paul. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. And if you do have any ideas on who we should interview, please send that email to info at onemob.com. That's info at o-n-e-m-o-b.com. 